All right, do not adjust your television sets. This has all been approved. This is happening. I am privileged. Yes, thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, first service, I joke, Pastor Scott mentioned it's 70 degrees in Chicago. It's raining in May in California. I'm giving the message. I believe we've identified three out of the four horsemen. Watch out. The end is nigh. Um, no, but in all seriousness, this has been really been a pleasure to prepare this and share it with you. Uh, I love scripture. Uh, I love that we teach the Bible here, and it's really my great privilege to jump in to the book of Colossians and share with you. Uh, so when, when you teach, you're supposed to open with a personal story. So here's my personal story. Are you ready? Uh, some of you guys know this, but Eric and I have a nearly 20-year history at ABF. It started with Agape. Excuse me as I adjust my... There we go. Started with Agape in the year 2000, and then I came on staff in early fall 2002. We were just getting started with our family. Uh, Ella was in utero, and um, we had three really sweet years of great fellowship. This church wrapped its arms around us as a young family and embraced us and kind of knit our hearts together with all of you guys. I see all these young families having babies, and I'm like, oh man, you guys are at the right place. Like, this church is just fantastic for that kind of thing. And as it turned out, those three really sweet years turned out to be really important because in 2005, I was 29 years old, and this church experienced a major crisis. Uh, we had a lead pastor at the time who had a moral failure, and he resigned. He taught one Sunday, and then he was gone. And it was traumatic to me because he was the one that brought me here. I was very close with him. He was a mentor. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I had a whole boatload of emotional and kind of spiritual damage that came from that experience. Um, I can tell you now that uh, at the time, the leadership and elders of the church did a heroic job uh, keeping this place for what it has become. They did an amazing job. At the time, I felt like uh, you know, logic had been surrendered and idiocy reigned supreme. Everything was chaotic. And I just thought, oh, this is all wrong. And of course, I knew what was right because I was 29. And that's what your 20s is all about, is knowing everything. It was a delightful uh, thing. I'm sure they loved being around me during that season. Um, like I said, take, take, took, took some time to get perspective. But uh, this experience triggered a long simmering faith crisis uh, for me. So in 2007, I actually stepped down from my role at ABF. I wanted to focus on outside music, and I kind of just needed to unpack my own brain a little bit. My conscience would not allow me to do that while taking a church paycheck. And really what it came down to was I just was tired of the pretending. I was really hurting. I didn't want to get up and lead worship. I just needed to go kind of figure myself out. It wasn't my wife's favorite season of our marriage. <laughs> it was a good time. Um, so it was during this season, I realized that I had allowed my faith just to be kind of grandfathered in. I was born in a Christian home. I went to Christian college. I entered Christian marriage at the age of 22. And that was kind of good enough, right? Until I really had a crisis. And then it all uh, like that whole kind of grandfathering inheritance Christianity fell apart. It just wasn't good enough for me. Uh, everything uh, seemed like it was just falling apart for me. Uh, so again, I stepped down. I took almost two years away from ministry. I kind of stripped my faith down to the bone. And for a season, I'll be honest, I wasn't sure that I was going to remain a Christian because everything up until that point had, had been Christian. So now I feel like garbage. And so it's like, well, why would I want to, you know, I just didn't make sense to me. Um, now, some of you might remember this, but after 9-11, there was a big-time kind of pro-atheist movement that really took root in this country. There are some atheist thinkers that believe in their heart of hearts that religion is dangerous, 
And 9-11 really brought that to the forefront of their minds. So I spent some time reading uh, guys like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and some of these atheist thinkers. And uh, it was actually Chris Hitchens in particular that really spoke to me. That guy has a razor sharp sense of humor. He has a very sharp and keen mind. And I just, I loved his intelligence and it just spoke to me, his sarcasm. It just, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. And so I read him. He was my favorite one. And then uh, like all good stories, there was a surprising plot twist. You ready for the plot twist? Jerry Falwell died. Remember Jerry Falwell? Founding pastor of this big church back in Virginia. He founded Liberty University. Uh, Bear with me as I tell my story. I was not a big fan of the Reverend Falwell. Uh, He would make commentaries on culture that I thought were dumb, that I thought just exemplified everything that was wrong with the church that I was trying to move away from. Uh, Just a sidebar, but it always bothers me when people that don't live here are like, Hollywood this and Hollywood wants that. And I'm like, Hollywood? Do you mean Burbank? Or like Culver City, I don't get it. Like the only thing in Hollywood is like Spider-Man and you know tourists. Like it's it's just bad commentary. Okay, now I'm not saying Reverend Falwell wasn't saved. He was a good guy, right? I just didn't like him at the time. So he dies, and lo and behold, who's on TV talking about him the day that this guy dies? Chris Hitchens. Okay, bring him on CNN. He's talking about Jerry Falwell, and he's trashing him just trashing him on CNN. He's a menace to society. It's a good thing he's gone. I actually went look back and looked online at what he said, and it was actually worse than I remembered. So I'm not even going to quote it because it's just, it's really dark and it's really bleak. And it was the brutality of his commentary hit me like a bolt of lightning. Okay. I'm sitting there folding laundry and it hit me like a bolt of lightning that this guy's intelligence hadn't guaranteed good fruit. It just intelligence didn't equal good fruit. And it was literally at that moment, I decided I'm done deconstructing my faith. I'm going to start reconstructing it. I decided that I would actually rather be intellectually wrong and bear good fruit in my heart and in my life than be intellectually correct and so filled with spite and malice that I went on TV and trashed my ideological adversary on the day of his death. The darkness and cynicism of that moment was like the, the shackles had come off. And uh, that's what happened. That was literally the moment. I, I, I had to do a lot of work, but I was able to kind of rebuild my faith into an adult faith, and I'm really grateful for that experience. Um, for the record, when Hitchens died, I made a point to pray for him. I prayed for his family. I wrote a blog post expressing gratitude for the way that he had challenged my thinking. I just didn't want to walk down that same path that he was on. I did not wish to be taken and held captive by that man's truth. Speaking of which, conveniently enough, pivot alert. This message is titled Deep Truth and Deeper Truth. And as I considered that season of my life, I realized that my truth, and that's big in this culture right now. What's your truth? My truth is this. Well, my truth is this, right? That's big in this culture. Well, guess what? My truth of that season was deep pain, deep pain. And it was real. That was my truth. Okay. I felt like God had forsaken me. I felt like God had forsaken our church. I felt like we were irreparably broken, that we would never heal. And, uh, and that was what I felt as my truth deep in my bones. However, with a few years perspective, I can tell you a deeper truth. I can tell you that during that season, there were some things in my personality that were literally burned out of my system. And I can't think of another way that would have happened. Those things had to go for me to be who I am in this season of harvest. There were some things in our church that had to go so that we could experience this season of harvest. So it's my prayer for you guys as we dive into uh, Colossians 2, that we won't settle for deep truth when God has a deeper truth that is available to us. Will you join me in prayer as we get ready to dive into God's word? 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your scripture. I just want to thank you for the story that you gave to me. I know it's a story that's maybe not similar to everybody else's, um, but Lord, I think the truth is everybody, if they're really honest, has had a moment of doubt or despair, uh, even long seasons or even entire sections of their lives that's devoted to that. Um, I pray, Lord, that uh, this, this chapter of Colossians would be a deep uh, balm and a, a clarifying experience as we uh, look at it. Uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, whatever comes out of my mouth would be what you want to have said and that you would get me out of the way. I pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's dive in. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Colossians 2, we're at 6 through 15. Um, you can keep it open to that. If there's other scripture, we'll throw it up on the, on the screens, uh, but you can uh, get there. So here we are, verse 6. It says this. Is it warm in here or... Yeah? I'm the pastor now, so someone turn on the air. I can feel... It doesn't take long before the power of this position really... I'll go back over there, I promise. Um, okay, guys, verse six. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, the original language, as well as the English translation of verse six, puts, as you received in the past tense. This message is meant for people who've already decided that Jesus is Lord, Okay. If you have not made that decision, it might make less sense to you. It probably did to the Colossians reader. I hope it pushes you that direction, but in case you're like, well, I don't know about that, this is for those of us that claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in the past. However, the phrasing, so walk with him, is the present tense. That's what's got to be happening today, okay? We've got to be walking with him, and that's what's going to root us and build us as Christians. So just out of curiosity, how many walkers or runners or hikers do we have in the room? Anybody enjoy that? Okay, growing up, I did not enjoy that. I preferred riding in a car, uh, preferably with somebody else driving since I was a child. Uh, I liked the air conditioning, I liked how fast we went, and I liked that it required essentially no effort from me. Um, uh, when I started to run for exercise, I realized that unless you've walked or run an area, you really don't get a real feel for it. Okay? When you are walking in your neighborhood or running in your neighborhood, you know where the cracks in the sidewalk are. You know which neighborhood dogs are going to bark at you and which ones are going to be friendly. Right? You can tell whose house is well-maintained or needs a little work. Uh, sometimes when I'm, when I'm out on a run or a walk and I don't have my earbuds in, I can actually pick up conversations from inside the house or the garage. You get a feel for, is it a happy home? Are they fighting? You can get a real feel for things just by getting out and taking some steps. The real big one is this. If you're out walking, you're in a car, you go up a 30-degree incline, it's just, mm, no problem, right? You just, oh, our RPM is high, right? If you are walking at a single degree of incline, either direction, your body alerts you immediately. Which way are we going? So I, I just love the image of the idea you got to walk in this, right? you got to get out, you got to walk in this. You cannot take casual spin through your Christianity. I think that's what I ha was happening to me at 29, was I'd kind of been behind the safety of glass. It was mom and dad's. It's mine. Everything's hunky-dory, right? It's just not quite good enough to really get the lay of the land when you break it, you know, tire breaks, whatever. It's a metaphor. It's my third time through this. I'm making things up. Um, you have to walk through, uh, you got to get to know Jesus' neighborhood uh, with your own two feet. You can't do it from an isolated environment. You got to run the miles. Uh, and when you do, what does it say? It says, you will be rooted, you will be built up, and established in him. Hey, Chad, don't we have a class at this church called Establish? Why, yes, we do. It's starting back up in the fall. It's completely devoted to this sort of thing. We go through, what do we believe? 
even if you've been through it a bunch of times, I would strongly recommend getting in that conversation. It's when you can have theological debates with Scott, and it's supposed to be there. It's a fun time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we do have that class. I just wanted to point that out there. That's the whole purpose of that class, to get established, to walk through it with our own two feet. It says this, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the natural result of a serious walk with the Lord through his word spiritually. You're abounding in thanksgiving. I just want to stress this. Uh, if you ever go for a, a run or a hike, there is a deep sense of satisfaction when you arrive at your destination, okay? The body actually releases endorphins. We call it a runner's high. It's like music sounds sweeter and colors are brighter and you just feel like everything's great with the world, right? That's the natural result of a walk with Christ, okay? Abounding in thanksgiving. It's not stale. It's not depressing. It's not sad. It's life-giving. Now, Unfortunately, there are some roadblocks that are, get in the way of this consistent walk with Christ. So let's have a quick look at what's coming. Let's look at verse 8, our second section. We're going to call it threat assessment. Buckle up, buttercups. We're going to be in verse 8 for just a couple minutes because there's a lot to unpack here, okay? Verse 8 says this, threat assessment. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, verse eight, again, reiterates this. See to it, get after it. This is not a passive thing. You gotta see to it. And then you gotta see to it that what? No one takes you captive. Okay, so the original Greek word for takes you captive is a fantastic word. I've been saying it under my breath all weekend because I love it. Sulagogio or sulagogio, okay? It literally translates as to carry off booty as if you are the spoils of war. That's what the word implies in the original Greek. So as I was thinking about this, I kind of feel like uh, those of us who are Americans, we live in a free society, we have religious protection. I think we struggle to kind of really understand and internalize this, right? Uh, the secret police are not coming into this room anytime soon. We're all going to finish this message. We're going to sing a song. We're going to eat a bagel, and then we're going to go home. Okay? So I think sometimes it's kind of hard to get this idea of like, well, who's coming to capture us? I, I just, I don't, that doesn't make sense. I had a vision. I'm, I have an absurd mind. So I thought like, we should do God's Not Dead 4 on the high seas with Captain Jack. Like, I come to pillage your Christian worldview. I don't know. Um, uh, that said, That said, guys, I think it is clear that we are in a bit of a culture war. Okay? We're in a battle for ideas in America in 2019. I think we've been at it for like 2,000 years because they're talking about it here in the New Testament. So it says, don't be taken captive. Don't be sulagogioed by what? Philosophy. That's what it says. Okay, The word philosophy comes from two Greek words, phileo, to love, and sophia, wisdom, to love wisdom. So before we go any further, there is nothing wrong with loving wisdom. The Bible holds wisdom in high regard. There is an entire book of the Bible devoted to wisdom. Godly wisdom is a good thing. I love this. Proverbs 4, 5, and 6 says, Get wisdom. Get it. See to it. Get it. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. I just want to point out that in this verse, as others, wisdom is referred to in the female pronoun, just saying. <laughs> point is, 
If you have an intellectual hunger for knowledge and especially wisdom, that's a good thing. It is okay to stare into the heavens at night and be filled with awe and wonder. It is okay to peer down into a puddle like the great philosopher Derek Zoolander and ask, who am I? I'm glad to see that we have some Zoolander fans in the church. I felt like that joke was just going to be for my wife, but I felt like I may never get to preach again, so I got to take my shots while I've got them. Who am I? That's okay. Okay, all of us have been male models at one time or another, asking ourselves who we are. Wisdom itself is not the problem. The problem is wisdom that's rooted in human tradition and what? Elementary spirits of the world and not in Christ. That's the kind of wisdom that can sulagogio us, can carry us away like spoils of war. I think it was happening in Colossae. There's absolutely no reason it's not happening in Agora Hills 2019. This is a present day problem. Anybody ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? Stockholm Syndrome. It's a term used to describe a psychological phenomenon where victims bond with and even come to empathize with their captors or abusers. The term originated in a public lexicon in 1973. There were four hostages taken in a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. And that was a five-day standoff with the police. During that time, the hostages, likely as a survival mechanism, began to empathize with their captors. When the standoff ended, none of them would testify against them. They defended them to the police. They went on TV and explained why it is that they took them hostage and threatened to kill them, okay? The trauma of their shared experience had bonded them together. The FBI estimates that one in 10, about 10% of victims of abuse and kidnapping exhibit symptoms, symptoms of Stockholm syndrome, okay? I think that we might be in danger of a little Stockholm syndrome culturally, okay? Um, I think it's just easier to go with the flow. It can be really exhausting to feel so out of sync with everybody else. Do you ever get tired of like, hear people talk and you just, oh, yeah, 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 I don't, I don't know. And you feel like you wanna say something, but then you just know it's gonna be a massive hassle. I don't think you're right. And then, you know, six hours later, you're still not agreeing, right? So what do you do? You Stockholm syndrome your way, that's fine. That's just, it's fine. Make explanation. I do this all the time. Okay, um, lost my place, that's not good. Okay, cool. Uh, I think even if you're super strong in your faith, one in 10 is just too high of a risk. I think Paul knew it, I think we should know it. Okay, it goes all the way back to Colossae. We are not told exactly which false teaching had threatened the Colossian church. Paul does not lay it out, this is the problem. But based on a little inference, we can, get, we, can, we can figure out based on this chapter and the next that it was kind of four major things, right? Philosophy, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, all right? Philosophy, do people in 2019 still worship intelligence? Yes, that's a thing, okay? Mysticism, oh, legalism, uh, guys, I don't care where you stand on the political spectrum, you're left, right, center. Uh, there are some serious, we are in a time of political legalism, okay? You're giving your opinion, it's like, I, I agree, I agree, I agree. Not that, you're dead to me, you're canceled. <laughs> we are in a time of, of real legalism. It happens on the left, it happens on the right, it happens in churches, it happens at the barbershop. It's still a major problem. Mysticism, people worship the earth, the sun, or the stars. How many times have you heard someone say, I asked the universe and the universe responded? That's mysticism. 
Okay, that's, 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 I want to believe that there's a benevolent force. I don't want to deal with scripture or any of the other religious texts. So, but it feels nice and warm and fuzzy to look out there and believe that there's something. So the universe responded. That's modern day mysticism. That's just what it is. I had to look up asceticism. Uh, it's a little bit more obscure, but it means the rigorous discipline or abstinence from some kind of sensory input, like extreme fasting. It typically means like for religious purposes, uh, but I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I feel like people worship their body mass index and they abstain from certain foods to get that perfect, perfect thing. And that's where they find their, their, you know, their identity. And, um, you know, I could stand to lose a few and I don't want to get after the people who are gym rats, but that's not a good enough thing to worship. It's good to be in shape, but you don't want to be an aesthetic asceticism type worshiper. Okay. So we can see the culture has changed. The culture hasn't changed that much guys. Okay? We still face the temptation to be taken captive by these same ideas that Paul is warning the early church about. So how do we know if we're in danger of being taken captive? This passage gives us a couple of warning signs, right? Human tradition and sp- elemental spirits. So let's look at human tradition. The Greek word for tradition is paradosis, which actually means that which is passed from one to another. So literally, it's any idea that you got from someone else. That is tradition, according to this biblical definition, paradosis. Uh, so I see it as two ways to look at this. Uh, one, the word tradition, right? What makes you think of that? Something old, something that's been passed down generation to generation. We have family traditions. We have cultural traditions. So for some people like me, I'm one of these people, it brings them great comfort. We're doing the same thing that our ancestors did. It brings me comfort. Here's just a quick word of caution. Just because an idea has been around a long time doesn't guarantee it's true. It just doesn't. The false teaching that was after the, Corinthian, or the, the Colossian church was not new. Greek world philosophy dates back to the time of the prophet Jeremiah, seven, 800 years before Paul was writing, okay? These ideas had been around a long time, and Paul's still fighting with them. We have plenty of bad ideas that have been around for a long time, and we're still fighting them. Just because something is old doesn't make it true. We have been falsely contemplating our navels for a very long time, okay? Exercise caution if you're someone who loves those old traditions. I'm not saying they're wrong, it just doesn't make them true. If you think about it, what was the central conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees? Pharisees were like, it's tradition, it's ritual, it's this built upon this, built upon this. That's how they're gonna know that you're saved. And Jesus is saying, you're crushing your people. You're not helping them at all. You're burdening them. I have a new thing going, and the Pharisees wouldn't let go of their old stuff. They wanted to keep on piling it on. This tradition problem is real, okay? Now, on the flip side, people love what's new. We risers are traditionally, uh see what I did there? A tech-forward kind of family, okay? We always had cool stuff when I was a kid. My dad was into Laserdiscs. Remember Laserdiscs? Predated DVD, they were the size of a record. The first digital thing, you had to flip them over halfway through the movie. Okay, we loved our laser discs. I love technology. My birthday is next month. Uh, I would like a Tesla Model Three in blue. Pretty please. I love new stuff. Uh, actually, I don't know about you guys, but I have fully converted to digital news. Gone are the days when I was a kid, I'd walk out, I'd grab the LA Times, I'd read the calendar section and the comics and the sports, and that was how I started my day. Uh, These days, we have what are called news aggregate 
apps, okay? You get on the app, you tell them what you're interested in, here's my political views, here's this, here's that, and every morning, that app sends you news suited to your taste, right? Here's the problem. News has become entertainment in 2019. I call it infotainment. And with these aggregate apps, they find out what you like, and then they feed you what you want to hear, okay? And they're coming in from multiple sources. Objectivity is largely gone from the news. I ain't picking on one side here because it's both, it's pretty goofy if you ask me. Whatever your politics are, you can find someone that's going to echo chamber you to death in 2019, okay? Um, I'm afraid, and this is, for, this is for you guys, young people, I think mostly, I'm worried that we're in a moment where just because an idea is new, it's given value. Whatever is the most current thinking on this, we thought this 10 years ago, but now we think this, that in and of itself is enough to justify that it's new. Now, that doesn't sound like tradition to me, but if you remember the Greek, Greek origin of the word, that which is passed from one to another, could we say that it's something that's gone viral? Yeah, okay? It's the same thing. It can be around for 2,000 years. It could just pop up on your app. It's the same deal. It came to you from someone that wasn't God. It's paradosis. It's human tradition. Okay? Watch out. Don't let it take you captive. What's the other thing it says to watch out for? Elemental spirits of the world. When I first read this, I assumed that it meant like, you know, philosophies based on the natural world, sun, wind, et cetera, et cetera. This is why it's really good to get a good Bible commentary if you can, if you can grab one, because that's not what the Greek word implies. The Greek word is stoichia. It's a word that typically corresponds uh, to a discussion of the alphabet having to do with children. It literally means things in a row, okay? It's the same word that uh, we see in Galatians 4.3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things, the stoichia of the world. It implies a lowest common denominator kind of understanding, okay? To put it in perhaps a modern vernacular, you basic, Right? Or my favorite insult, uh, that dude's about as sharp as a biscuit. Get it? Because biscuits, they are not, they're not sharp, right? I enjoy insults a little too much. It's not very pastoral. That's why they keep me back there not talking. Um, so what, our, what are our base subconscious human instincts? Okay, what are a few? Fear, safety, hunger, lust. All of these base instincts serve a purpose. Fear keeps you from running out into traffic. It doesn't keep my children from doing it, but it keeps normal people from doing it. Fear keeps you alive. A desire for safety leads you to want to be a part of a society that's governed by rule of law. Hunger tells you when to eat so you don't, you know, die. <laughs> Hunger's a good thing. Lust, it gets a little bit of a bad rep and it can get us in trouble, but let's keep it real here. It's pretty key in the human race not going extinct. Okay, it serves a purpose. There are trillion dollar international industries built around these base human needs. There are entire political movements and amendments to our constitution organized around basic human impulses. But we cannot kid ourselves, fellow believers, because while these base instincts serve a purpose, they are deeply rooted in a sinful and fallen world. If we were not in a sinful world, we wouldn't need to be afraid if we were not in a sinful world, we would not have hunger. We would not lust for things that do not belong to us. These basic human instincts are rooted in a fallen world. 
Uh, this is kind of a sidebar. I get, I get a little twitchy sometimes when I hang around Christians that kind of give this sort of impression like, well, I've been walking with the Lord for so long that all of these sins, they're sort of for other people. I'm not worried about them in my own life. Hogwash. If you are exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide, you live in a fallen world, and it is sewn into the fabric of your reality. I'm not saying that Christ isn't greater. I'm just saying, as long as we are here, until this world is restored or we are called into his presence, we are not immune from this stuff. It's in here to keep us, we're, we're, it's, they're bringing this to the forefront, these base instincts, because we've got to be aware they are present, okay? Uh, that all sounds fairly discouraging, but I have some good news for you. Help is on the way. The cavalry has arrived here in verse 9. We're going to go to the next section entitled, Jesus, My Rescue. Let's read 9 through 12. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So verse nine dramatically and unequivocally tells us that the fullness of God was present in the earthly body of Jesus Christ, okay? One of the captive philosophies, the Sulagogio philosophies, Jesus was a good moral teacher. He was a nice guy. He loved people. He was super nice, right? That's not correct. Scripture teaches that he was the God-man, the fullness of God present in the body of Christ. Verse 10 goes on to remind us that with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are filled with him. We are indwelled by his Holy Spirit. We are no longer bound by the human tradition and these elemental basic principles, these spirits of the world. Through Jesus, we are given the gift of actually knowing God on a first name basis. That is a good thing. Verse 11 turns a significant corner and begins talking about circumcision. So this is the part of the message where I'd like to thank Pastor Scott for giving me uh, a passage to teach on that involves uh, a detailed specific of the male anatomy. So <clears throat> it is what it is. Um, so to better understand circumcision, let us all focus on this very detailed diagram on the screen. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. How about, how about a quick review instead? Um, I do not have time to do a full treatise on the history because circumcision is a big source of conflict in the Old Testament and the New, uh, but this practice goes all the way back to Genesis 17 as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. God said, by this physical act, you and all your descendants will show yourselves to be in covenant with me. And all the men in the room together say, but why? <laughs> Why? Why that? I think Abraham was like, are you sure? I'm a grown man when this little chestnut got dropped on him, right? Like, I think he probably had questions. So what is the deal with circumcision? Why is it such a big deal? Uh, Pastor John MacArthur has a really amazing take on this, and I'm just going to read it straight from what he said. It really spoke to me. It says this. 
The cutting away of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin inasmuch that it is the part of man that produces life, and all he produces is sinful. Now, John MacArthur can be a little bit blunt for my taste, but uh, I think he really makes a profound point, and here's what struck me about this, okay? I have three children. I live for my kids. I would give my life for my kids. If you threaten my kids, I believe I could take a life to protect these children, okay? I love my kids, but I know deep in my soul that they were born sinners. They were born into a sinful world. Their children their grandchildren, and every generation that follows until the Lord comes back will be deeply enmeshed in sin. I know that in my core being. And I think MacArthur's quote really captures why that. However, in Jesus, that old covenant was fulfilled and his death and resurrection signaled the beginning of a new covenant, a circumcision not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Verse 12 pivots to... Baptism. Baptism is a symbol of our new covenant with God. It's a symbol of being buried and raised to life again, just as Jesus was buried and raised again to life and glory. I think it's so cool we had baptism this morning. Did their bodies change? No. It's spiritual. It's in here. It's in the parts of us that we can't see. That's what that represents. The old person's buried. A new creation is raised spiritually. I think it's really cool that in this verse, when when it talks about God powerfully working to raise Christ from the dead, the Greek word is energia, which of course is our word energy. So I just want you to feast your minds. I don't have a point with this. Just feast your minds on this for a second. The exact same energy that reanimated dead cells, that restarted a dead heart, that mended a crucified and battered and broken body back to life, that same energy, according to the word of God, is active and present alive in your body, in your soul, right now, today. Take great comfort and joy, abounding thanksgiving, that that same energy is present and available right now for those who know and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. All right, one more section. We're calling this no filter, hashtag no filter, verses 13 through 15. Uh, To set this up, anybody on Instagram in here? I'm an Instagram person. The kids are because, you know, why not? Uh, So on Instagram, we have all these handy-dandy tools that make your pictures basically look more interesting or better than they actually were. We call them filters. You can clean things up. You can smooth your face out. You can cut people out. It's great, right? It's fantastic. Uh, Ever, however, once in a while, you'll get a picture, and the light is just perfect. Everybody's smiling. That one idiot is not in it. You don't have to crop him out, right? You put your picture up on Instagram, and you proudly announce, hashtag, no filter, Right? It's kind of a little mark of pride on your picture. You know what that's really saying, I think? I think it's exciting because it's like, this is what I actually saw, you guys. That's what it really looked like. It's a clear picture of what I saw. Hashtag no filter. So right here uh, at the end of this, of this chapter, we have a little bit of a picture of God's sort of no filter, deeper truth that's available to us. So let's read together. 
Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together in him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him, over them in him. So if you remember earlier, I asked kind of a, existential question. Well, who's really coming to take us captive? We made a Jack Sparrow joke, and then we explored some of the more abstract Stockholm syndrome of the culture. But, and this is a big but, we do in fact have a spirit of darkness that is out there that is working against us. We call him Satan. We call him the devil. And the Bible says that he's the ruler of this world. He's the God of this world, the prince of power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So this final verse, 15, speaks of a triumph. It says that Jesus outwitted sin and death and the devil himself, and he made a mockery of their dominion over this planet and over our humanity. Now, as I read this, as I thought about it, I could not help but think of the way that C.S. Lewis articulated this idea in his classic book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I read this again the last couple of years uh, with my young ones, and I was just reminded of this particular passage that really speaks to this. For those of you that don't remember the story, it's a, it's a little allegory about four children who stumble into this magical, mythical world called Narnia. And, and the first book here, it's been enslaved and put into an eternal winter by the white witch who represents the devil, right? So one of the four kids, Edmund, he meets the witch early on in the story and she feeds him and she flatters him and she makes him all these promises. And then she says, I just need you to do one thing. I need you to totally sell out your siblings to me because they're a threat to my authority. And he's like, well, that sounds like a good idea because he was already kind of upset with them. So um, later on, he actually does that. He totally sells out his other brothers and sisters. The remaining three children encounter Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus in the story. Aslan is the a son of the emperor beyond the sea who created Narnia. And so as the story unfolds, Edmund's actually rescued from the witch. He's brought back into the fold. He repents. He joins his siblings. They're liberating Narnia everywhere. It's all beautiful. And except the witch has this little trick up her sleeve. Okay? So she walks into Aslan's camp and she negotiates a truce and she says this. She reminds Aslan about the deep magic. She says, you at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey and that for every treachery, I have the right to a kill. And Aslan actually agrees with her. He knows that his father's will is not up for discussion or debate. So he kind of walks off with the witch and tries to negotiate some kind of agreement. And when they return, Aslan turns to the children and says, I have settled the matter. She has renounced the claim on your brother's blood. So later that night, they all go to sleep and Aslan kind of wanders off from the camp and goes towards the witch's army. He's followed by the two sisters, Lucy and Susan. And then what follows is perhaps the most harrowing scene in all of children's literature as Aslan gives himself over to the witch and her army, and his mane is shorn and his claws are clipped off, and ultimately he is murdered by the hand of the witch herself. The sisters wait until the witch's army has left in their gleeful triumph, and then they go to see Aslan's body, and they're mourning and they're sad. And then when the morning comes, their sadness turns to joy, as it turns out Aslan is very much alive and very much in charge. In charge. They are overjoyed, but they sort of stammer in wonder. And eventually Susan asks, but what does it all mean? Isn't that great? Isn't that the question of philosophy? What does it all mean? 
She's asking there for us. And Aslan replies with this. It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Isn't that lovely? On this side of the cross, death is working backwards. So uh, we are not at Hogwarts. So instead of deep magic and deeper magic, we're going to call it deep truth and deeper truth. Okay? Worldly philosophies based on human tradition and these basic spiritual elements, they are ultimately subject to the deep truth of the world. What's the deepest truth in the world? Death and taxes. If you screw up, it's on you. You don't like your political adversary? Well, get on TV and trash him. Why not? You know, especially the day they die. Why not? Might makes right. You get what's coming to you. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. That is the deep truth of the world. That's all there is. I believe that it has been etched deeply into uncircumcised hearts since the Garden of Eden. What I think this scripture is reminding us of is the fact that we are not subject to the deep truth. We live under an easy yoke and a light burden of God's deeper truth, of death working backwards. This scripture reminds us that Jesus himself is the author of this truth. He gets to say how it is. He is the lens through which every other thing can be drawn into a no-filter kind of focus. Um, you know, I, I gave this message for the first time Thursday night, and there were two young women who got really emotional at that part. I wasn't expecting it. And it struck me that, you know, um, I think some people, even in this church, uh, certainly in our culture, are weary from living under the crushing burden of death and taxes, and that's it. Deep truth of this world is soul crushing. Uh, if you really study most worldly philosophers, the, the natural conclusion of, of all of it is, well, it's all meaningless. I just want to tell you that if, if you've been suffering under that kind of doubt, uh, we really hope as a staff that this church feels like a safe place for you to express that. Uh, you will not be shunned or turned away for expressing doubt or sorrow about spiritual things. We may not be able to agree with you. We may not have you teach a Bible study, but you are not going to get run out of here if you walk up to me or Scott or anybody on staff or anybody on the elder board and say, man, I am struggling with my doubts. I'm struggling with my faith. We would love to have the profound privilege of walking you and loving you through that process because I, I think there are people who are just getting their spirits crushed by deep truth. Um, so I just hope that, that this message maybe spoke to you if you were in that space. Um, if you're not in that space, you learn some Greek words, so that's cool. Um, the deeper truth of the kingdom of God is not about just taking and keeping what's yours. It is not just about organizing your life around feeding hunger and satiating lust. The kingdom of God is transcendent beyond flesh and blood and what we can see just right in front of us, these elemental spirits of the world. And as I, as I close this time... Um, I thought I would just um, 
share what does that deeper truth look like? What is the kingdom of God really like? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the gift of Colossians chapter 2. I want to thank you, Lord, for reminding us that we are not subject to what is right in front of us, that even though we might be feeling something so deeply, there is a greater story that's unfolding. God, if there's anybody that's here in this room or knows a family member that's caught in that momentary deep truth and it is doing its crushing work on them, it is painful to experience, it is painful to observe, we pray, Lord, that you would unleash your Holy Spirit in their hearts and in our hearts to relieve us of that crushing burden. And instead, Lord, that each and every one of us, old saints, young people, those who are brand new to knowing you, those who have walked with you their whole lives, I pray that they would be reminded that the deepest truth of your reality is life, is restoration, is hope, is a future that is filled with blessing and abundance even after we suffer the end of this life. Lord, we praise you and we honor you in this church. I just want to say thank you, Lord, for this time. It's in your name that we pray and sing. Amen. Just a couple more quick things to share before we say goodbye this morning. Uh, we always have people down front available to pray with you. If something has stirred up within you that you would like some prayer for, if there's stuff going on, please, please, please uh, take advantage of that. Also, again, newcomer's lunch. There's free food. I'm going to be there. It's a good time. Um, and, and finally, earlier I had mentioned that um, that early time at ABF, um, uh, our hearts were knit together with yours as we had our first child. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who have been here for so long and have loved us so well for so many years. Um, and also, uh, we know there was this huge baby boom in the church, and then two weeks ago, Josh and Lindsay announced their blessed news. So we didn't want to get left out, so we are here to let you know we are going to have a baby in December of this year. <laughs> As you know, December is a very relaxing month for us, um, and get this, the baby is actually due December 25th, so at Thanksgiving, pray for the risers, please. God bless you. Take some time to be good to one another. Have a wonderful week.